Welcome to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends, brought to you by the Yamaha R7, a new generation of super sport machine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. On paper, the BMW M1000R is an absolutely spectacular machine. It's the upright, naked superbike version of the S1000R, with the motor from the track-focused S1000RR in a comfortable-to-ride package. In our first segment this week, Nick DeSena takes the M1000R onto the street and to the track, and he reports back on what all the fuss is about. Our snippet this week comes to you from the MV Agusta factory in Varese, Italy. As you may or may not know, KTM's parent company, the Piero Mobility Group, late last year acquired a significant stake in the fabled Italian racing brand that produces arguably the most beautiful motorcycles in the world. I spoke to three of the key players, Timur Sardarov, the CEO, Luca Martin, the COO, and Florian Kecht, the chief sales officer for KTM, in that partnership. I managed to get their take on exactly what PMG will bring to MV Agusta, how likely the company is to survive, and huh, whether this is real or just smoke and mirrors. Our second segment brings you part two of Neil Bailey's fascinating chat with iconic racer and five-time Daytona 200 winner Scott Mr. Daytona Russell. The native Georgian, of course, needs no introduction. Neil and Scott have been friends for many years, and Scott opens up about the challenges he's faced, the ups and downs of life after racing, after that unfortunate and horrendous crash at Daytona that ended his career. We're happy to say that Scott is thriving now. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Now, if you remember a few years ago, BMW Motorrad finally confirmed that base model bikes don't truly come into the United States. They do, few and far between, but more often than not, what lands on the dealership floor is going to be an optioned out version of the motorcycle that uh, we see in our reviews. Honestly, the reviews that, that we perform and those as tested prices are more reflective of what ends up on a BMW uh, dealership floor. So a, an, a BMW S1000R base model motorcycle is about $15,000 as tested per our 2022 BMW S1000R review, it was $20,765. That's with multiple options, a semi-active suspension, ride modes, et cetera, et cetera. Now the M1000R starts at 21,345 as tested. 
comes in at 28,235. Now, the M on paper doesn't option out semi-active suspension, ride modes, things of that nature. Those are all standard features on the M bike. So it comes with more features, does cost a little money on the base, base price. So to just kind of be clear about this, the options price of the S1000R just falls short of the standard price of the M1000R. However, you're more likely to encounter the $28,000 price, with, which has additional extras to bring it up to that. Our M1000R has the competition package, comes with numerous, numerous items, uh, you know, the highlights of which are the fully adjustable hand, hand and foot control. So you have adjustable rear sets, levers, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of anodized billet aluminum bling, all M branded, of course, because it is the M motorsport motorcycle. The sort of biggest thing that's in that competition package is the lightweight M carbon fiber wheels that shave off 3.7 pounds compared to alloy variants. It also increases the rear tire width to 200, so you can fit that big chunky old boy on the back. Um, you get slightly thicker front discs, and then there's carbon fiber just everywhere on the motorcycle because go fast. Um, now, the, the things that are really going to change the riding experience, one, the adjustable rear sets are always nice because you can customize seating positions and uh, ergonomics. That's super important. But more important to any of that and how this would change a review from, say, just a standard M1000R versus the bike that we had, the carbon fiber wheels. That reduces rotational mass and things of that nature and really impacts the handling characteristics to a pretty significant margin. So that's all to say that, in my opinion, price aside, the M1000R definitely does eclipse the S1000R because it really expands on everything that I enjoyed about that bike. It retains the solid comfort. It's a very comfortable motorcycle, despite the fact that it doesn't necessarily look, at it, look like it. And it also gives you the full fat superbike engine slammed into the same chassis, basically. Now, I still think there are people that are going to be looking at the S1000R based on uh, price and things of that nature. But realistically, mm, this is where my mindset goes. And that's before we kind of talk about anything else. And the last sort of optional thingy that's on here is the $2,000, to be more specific, $1,895 uh, M titanium exhaust. It means it's titanium from front to back. It is homologated, comes with a, a in a, an Akrapovich titanium muffler, which is actually standard on the bike already. And the optioned out stuff is a uh, titanium header and mid pipe. Um, now, as I said before, it is homologated. However, this saves 10 pounds over the, uh, the stock unit, including the wheels overall. So if you have a, a standard 439 claimed curb weight, that drops it down to 429 pounds, which is quite respectable. Good. So I guess to start start at the beginning, my my first curiosity is: Does the the superbike motor work well on the street? You know, um, or is it just too unruly and too difficult? I mean, over 200 horsepower. You're talking about an awful lot. 
Um, is it just unworkable or is it very rideable? No, it's it's a very gentlemanly motor, uh, you know, sub 8,000 RPM. It retains a lot of the same personality traits that you, you would experience on an S1000R. Realistically, what separates the two is its aggression as you start building the revs. So for me, you know, it, it is a, a, a a taste that I'm familiar with already because we sort of know how the Beamer's inline four engine behaves. It is sort of that, that classic screamer kind of engine. But what you get out of the, the more performance-oriented version of this in the M1000R is just something that takes everything up, you know, a notch or two or several in certain cases. But off the bottom, it does make a, a decent amount of torque. I mean, it's quite appreciable. Uh, the idle on this bike is set kind of curiously high. You can just slip the clutch and idle along in the pit lane or, you know, trundle along at about 15, 16 miles an hour, which is kind of interesting. Um, I haven't really seen too many motorcycles do stuff like that. And then, you know, it just builds into that power and really starts gaining its stride. And then you happen upon something that BMW really hasn't worked out quite yet. Um, all of their performance-oriented inline-four engines, whether we're talking BMW uh, 1000XR, BMW S1000R, RR, et cetera, et cetera, they all have an emissions-related, uh, to be more specific, a noise emissions flat spot that's from 6,000 to about 8,000 RPM. And it really kind of sours that initial stage of the, the mid-range which if that flat spot wasn't there, it would be absolutely impressive. I'm pretty, pretty well convinced myself of that. Now, once you climb out of that, that hole, the exhaust valves open and things start getting pretty, pretty awesome. You have, again, really solid torque, especially when we're considering, you know, inline four, which needs a lot of that high RPM to kind of build on its power. And then things start getting pretty, pretty intense as it builds. It just becomes faster and faster and faster and faster. And the thing just absolutely shrieks to a 14,500 uh, 14, RPM redline. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely intense when you get it up there. But as a streetable engine, you can still use a lot of that power that's between, say, the 8, the eight and 11 RPM range. And, you know, if you do kind of fall into that, that slump on the street, you can usually just kick down a gear and get out of it. Um, you know, there is an interesting thing where you're not using as, as wide throttle openings on, as you would on the racetrack. So you can actually fall into the, the sort of the slump, we'll say. And it's not terrible. You know, you're just kind of cruising along and just sort of rolling the throttle on and off. And you're still getting power you know, at a street pace, uh, where it becomes more of an issue is at the racetrack, because there actually is a characteristic that's not so great about that, you know, at those larger throttle openings, and I rode at uh, Button Willow Raceway Park, which a lot of our Southern California based listeners may be familiar with. When you come into turns like turn two, it's very slow, especially on a, on a leader bike, and the revs will drop, um, you know, depending on your gearing, you could easily go into first gear on some bikes but at any rate you know when you fall below that 8k mark and then you're 
really cranking the throttle on as it climbs out of that that sort of a that kind of emissions hole the transition into the good power bands it's not as aggressive as, as it used to be when we first rode the 2020 s1000 rr it was pretty harsh it was very light switchy now that's smoothed out more but it's still there and you can create some unwanted uh chassis chassis movement just because it's suddenly coming into the power and it can create wheel spin if you think about turn two there's a lot of tar snakes there it's actually coming over a little rise so you're getting the bike pivoted and then suddenly the power comes in and you're like oh god <laughs> so yeah you know this is something that bmw has really struggled with and i understand that it seems like i'm harping on the issue and the fact is we have to i'm sorry bmw for a bike of this performance etc 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 quality they need to have their feet held to the fire there's no way around it sorry the the competitors are not struggling nearly as bad um, bmw does offer a torque optimized calibration from the dealership so it's just straight flash as far as i can tell it is uh, uh free of charge but it's really a band-aid and what it does is it's sacrifices a boatload of top end power and to try to bring back some of that low and mid-range which is quite beneficial on the street the problem is if you were to go to racetrack you would see it fall flat now another another bike that's a big offender is the honda uh, cbr 1000 rr hyphen rsp basically suffers from the same exact problem um you know up at about 12.5 the thing just get gets its kneecaps cut off and you know there you go again it has nothing to do with carbon emissions it's 100 noise emissions so yeah that's that's an annoyance at a bike of this this level now once you get out of that you're still getting an absolutely insane motor and that's kind of what i want to make clear i mean just ripping down the front straightaway of button willow <laughs> front end is coming up as you're clicking into fourth gear and you know those those winglets are are doing their damnedest to, to keep the front end down. Um, you know, this is one of those interesting things where I'm pretty familiar with the S1000R, and then also riding the bike with aerodynamics. Obviously, I didn't do a back to back comparison, but I actually feel like these things might be doing something. Really, um, you can actually feel that. You think? just the the s1000r and the m1000r are definitely you know they build on each other or we say that i'll say that the m1000r builds on everything that the s1000r established it doesn't take anything away at track speed the m1000r with the winglets is going to obviously have more downforce at the front which is going to make the front feel more planted especially in you know the faster corners so somewhere like you know, Riverside, which is a hundred mile an hour corner at Button Willow. Do, do you feel like the M1000R feels, you know, more planted than the S? Yeah, I, I would. You do okay. Lean Good. into that that statement with. Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. It's for me where I, I was sort of measuring it the most is just going down the front straightaway. I mean, with the the power difference, the aggression difference in terms of the engine. Um, and how it would control wheelies and things of that nature. 
I, I got the sense that the winglets were actually doing something. And per the numbers, BMW says that it creates 24.3 pounds of downforce at 137 miles per hour. So for this bike to get up to that, that speed, that's all in a day's work. Yeah. And, and that is about the front straight at bottom willow. So yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Yeah. You know, obviously the front end is still coming up. Button Willow's old nickname, which it's it's uh, well on the way to re-earning, used to be Bumpy Willow. Um, so on the right side of the, the straightaway, <laughs> you can kind of, the front end just sort of does this little lifting motion over bigger bumps when you're just holding the throttle wide open. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the engine in a nutshell. The The top end performance is just, breathtaking i mean it's insanely fast and there definitely is some high rpm engine buzz but honestly anytime you're riding that quick on this thing you're so preoccupied with everything else <laughs> yeah your mind's on other stuff and if it isn't then you've got a big problem yeah well you, know, you <laughs> might not in a short order so <laughs> right. but, um, yeah yeah things happen very quickly at those kind of speeds i'm very familiar with that yeah, and then that sort of brings us into the transmission. As I mentioned before, the main differences between the uh, Superbike engine and the engine that's seen here is internal ratios have been updated. And it's just to shorten things up, which is really advantageous for a street bike. You know, a, a naked bike does not need the same, uh, you know, long gearing that a Superbike does because it's not intended to achieve those same uh, top speeds doesn't necessarily need it, you know, even though this thing is very performance oriented. So the later half of the gearbox, uh, gears three through six, those are shortened a bit. And then lastly, the final drive gearing is shortened. So it has a, a, a sprocket on the rear that's two with an additional two teeth. And that overall, that, that tightens the gearing up quite a bit. Um, now the gearbox, gearbox itself, I think is a cut above what I experienced with the S1000R long ago. That gearbox is very, 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 very good. I need to make that abundantly clear. What I experienced on the S1000R is a quick shifter, an up-down quick shifter that took kind of an inordinate amount of pressure to, to use. It didn't really dig it all that much, although its actual function and fluidity was quite nice. This bike has worked out that issue completely. This genuinely is one of the best examples of a sport gearbox on the market today. I would put it up there with, um, you know, the Panigale V4, the Honda CBR1000RR-RSP, which I'm going to say because of its ridiculously long names, just so I can highlight that. Um, <laughs> and those gearboxes in my mind, just, they're, they're, Excellent. There's kind of no, no other way to put it. Now the up-down quick shifter works nicely, performs well at pretty much any speed. I didn't have any hesitation with, you know, high RPM sh downshifting into, into a slower corners. Again, that's kind of the, you know, turn two situation. You really, you know, spike the RPMs there. Right. We're coming into turn one, clicking down from fourth or fifth, depending on, on you know, how quick you're going. Um, but yeah, that, that's a, that's an excellent gearbox. Um, so yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I would imagine that the M M model comes with some pretty serious electronics with all sorts of different, you know, riding modes. Yes, yes. And everything is derived from the Superbike. So 
because it's the M bike, you don't have to option out for ride pro modes, which is BMW's nomenclature for allowing you to adjust things. I appreciate that because in my opinion, you should buy a motorcycle and then get its basic features because that's what the competition has. Yes, 1000R can't make that claim. Um, okay. Now you have preset modes. And the important thing to understand here is that your riding mode influences or controls in some cases, and you'll understand what that means in a second, everything else. So that is going to dictate your semi-active suspension setting, your cornering ABS, adjustable traction control, wheelie control, engine braking adjustment, motor slip regulation, which is essentially uh, an electronic um, assist to the slipper clutch. That's, you know, the mechanical slipper clutch. Um, and then you also have launch control, cruise control, a pit lane limiter, heated grips, keyless ignition. And um, with the M model, you also get the GPS lap timer thing that's unlocked. Um, now, as I said before, your ride mode dictates all of the adjustable stuff, right? So you have your preset riding modes of rain, road, dynamic, and race. They all work as advertised going up from a very soft low power mode and then opening up the horsepower a little bit <clears throat> where you're into the full dynamic and race modes which you know start lessening those those torque strategies and giving give you the full fat version of the engine really now the ride pro modes allow you to customize everything so that point of the conversation is sort of moot because you can do essentially whatever you want now for me Road is definitely a good preset mode if you're just cruising around. That softens the bike overall to the point where it's just a very livable motorcycle. Dynamic responds to your inputs and, uh, you know, it, it, it takes more direction than I think people think. Um, you know, if you're, if you're riding with intention and you're making your inputs clear to the motorcycle, as in you are riding at a quicker pace, things like that, then dynamic seems to respond very well. So I, I would use that for, you know, more spirited Canyon riding, if anything. Um, race is simply a racetrack mode as it intends. And it's really more designed for more high performance tires. So DOT race tires, slicks and things of that nature. Um, it really curbs the nannies and makes the bike insanely stiff. Um, honestly, it's too stiff for me. Um, they're definitely too stiff for the street. So, so it's, even, it's even too stiff for you on the track. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried race initially and the suspension settings, it's default suspension settings were just above and beyond what I would do. Um, Interesting. But this is all preference too. So, you know, suspension is a, it's like dieting, not one diet works for one person. You know, there are general rules, but right these things are all preference-based. So for me, it, it just made, I actually lost grip when I was in the race mode. Um, now I don't represent everyone. There are people that are faster, slower, heavier, lighter, and it, that's all going to dictate how you feel about that. Now in the ride pro modes, there are three of them. So you essentially have three configurable modes. That's kind of where it's at for me. You can set up three modes, do whatever you want. So I set up essentially a track mode, a street mode, and then a mode that I would test things against, basically. And you know, you have your IMU supported ABS, traction control, wheelie control, 
Now there's sort of a, an excessive 14 levels of TC that goes plus seven and then minus seven. Wow. And that's confused me for many years with the BMW because I've always wondered how you had have negative traction control. But <laughs> I don't know. I just, to me, I feel like that can be simplified. Just right. whatever. But the TC is very good, even in its more aggressive um, settings. It doesn't, you know, have these hard power cuts. It definitely feeds the power back in. Um, and even when you when you start lowering it, you think that TC may not be working. You kind of catch it in your peripheral, and it's it's definitely getting a workout. Um, there are multiple uh, ABS modes. You can actually disable ABS for full slick usage, um, wow. but I didn't really feel feel it necessary at my little track day um abs maybe spoke up once or twice and you know i was kind of glad it did it so it's more more than ample for anyone that's uh you know riding an a pace or anything like that um no issues there. and then you can also really crank it up to the point where it will engage you know say in a, in a poor weather situation wheelie control just sort of hovers the front end when you're really just whacking the throttle on in the lower settings we'll say and honestly i just kept it there whatever just on the street of the track it's totally cool um yeah so the electronics are very good now this sort of noteworthy update to the electronics is that they've added a steering angle sensor and that really measures how far the handlebars and fork are out of alignment with the chassis now if you think about the fork and as you turn the handlebar that's something that is a measurable point of data. And, you know, think about traction control and how ABS works. And if you're cranking on the throttle out of a, out of a corner and, you know, the back end is starting to step out as you're initiating wheel spin and sort of power sliding out of a corner, the handlebar is going to be out of alignment with the chassis. It's just a natural thing. Likewise, if you're on the brakes and you start backing the bike in, the handlebars are going to be out of line, alignment with the chassis. Now, BMW have keenly picked up on that and we're like, hey, we can measure that and apply that to our TC and ABS algorithms. So that's really, really led to some extra refinement over the BMWs, the greater BMW electronics package. But more importantly, it's brought in kind of a party trick to this, this whole affair, which is brake slide assist. Essentially, it, it it's an assist, and we've also seen this on Ducati, where it modulates rear brake inputs to help people back the bike in. I've tried it, and my opinion sort of stays the same as with the Ducati one as well. Have If you're running a pace to actually back a 1,000 motorcycle in, you definitely don't need this. <laughs> right. Because it's just beyond, you're, you're already there. So... It's an interesting thing to play with, but personally speaking, I'm not sure how much I trust either system. And when I say either system, I mean the BMWs or the Ducatis. It's I'm not sure I entirely understand. So basically, because this sensor is able to measure how much the steering is turning, you can back it into corners. And what does it then do? It then modulates the traction control to make it easier yeah, well, TC, ABS, everything. Um, it's essentially not letting you go beyond a predetermined drift angle, if that makes sense. So it's not letting okay. you step the bike out 
so far to where you're going to launch yourself into a high side. Okay. It puts you on the cusp of that region and then gives you a taste of what backing a bike in would be like. Okay. In relative safety. Yeah. So I see. Okay. I get it. I get it. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Like you say, if you're, if you're interested in backing the thing into corners, you know, on the track, you're already at a level where you probably don't need this. Yeah. And to be clear, backing in a 1000 is like not a small thing. No. <laughs> you have to go. Yes. A thousand with a 200 rear tire on it, you know, sticky rear tire. You're going to have to be, you're going to have to have your wits about you to pull that off. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, and it, I have the same opinion about the Ducati system as well. It, it's, it's neat, but let's be honest, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> There's not too many of us are going to be using it. <laughs> yeah. And so that's my commentary on the feature. Now, the benefit of this additional sensor is that it adds another data point and it allows the bike to analyze it out the algorithm to a much higher degree. And okay. I, I think you know, I'll, I'll definitely give some credence to this, this additional sensor point because it has the IMU six axis IMU, but also has this and the electronics package is quite good on this motorcycle. So it's definitely up to snuff with your Ducatis, your Aprilias, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, you know, that's the new feature. So we had to kind of harp on it that said, well, you know, give it a shot, but, uh, understand that actually doing it is sort of a different thing. Um, you know, that sort of brings us into the handling, which is kind of the, I'd say, one of the key points of this entire platform. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the handling. I mean, is the handling overall pretty intuitive, pretty neutral? Is it is it an easy-to-ride motorcycle, or is it or is it pretty hair-trigger and, and, uh, and bordering nervous? No, I, I was worried about that because the S1000R is sort of renowned for its neutral steering it's it's a very agile motorcycle without resting into anything that would really upset it uh, it also uses some of the more conservative geometry among the, the class overall which is the same thing here the geometry between the two bikes is not a carbon copy of each other but they're they're quite similar um the m1000r is a slightly longer wheelbase and you know a couple other just little number fudges here and there but they're almost the same so that again you know the m builds on the s um that said our m bike and i need to make this abundantly clear has carbon fiber wheels this changes sort of everything about what i'm about to say to handling um the the good news is is that it takes everything that the s did well retains all of that and then expands it with just much more agility because we're, we're reducing that rotating mass, that unsprung weight, it allows the bike to be even sharper. I mean, this is one of the, the more, I would say in the leader class right now with the carbon fiber wheels, this is one of the fastest handling motorcycles in the bunch, you know, probably only rivaled by the Ducati Street Fighter uh, in the sense that that bike has a counter rotating crankshaft that really helps out handling too. Um, but again, lightweight carbon fiber wheels that reduces, you know, the the, the impact of gyroscopic forces considerably compared to alloy wheels. But the handling—that's something I really like about it. On the street, you know, we use buzzwords like telepathic, 
in reviews. And you can influence right. the spike just with sort of, you know, muscle inputs, we'll say. Uh, you know, we were sort of joking about this, uh, myself and a, and a colleague, where you can sit upright and just kind of squeeze your core and other muscles that are not, not fit for um, public discourse and influence the bike into a turn. You don't necessarily have to steer it with, you know, your main inputs. You don't have to put pressure through the foot pegs or counter steer. Blah, blah, blah. It's right. just that intuitive. And really, I think a lot of that comes from the carbon fiber wheels. Um, now at the racetrack, that pays off in the sense that you can just snap the thing into corners, get it on the edge of the tire, and always trust that the front end is going to go where you need it to go. So if you run a little wide and you need to bring it back on the brakes or just kind of need to arc that thing in there and, and get to the apex, it's going to do it. That's, that's it. And you can also rely on the stability that comes through, comes through as well. Um, you know, the, there is some temperament changes between the bikes, you know, with the more aggressive engine, I would say that you have a tendency to sort of uh, make the chassis work a bit harder, especially if you're up in that upper RPM band and really cranking on the power. That's where setting up your suspension is going to, is really going to pay off. But uh, yeah, yeah, the handling on this thing is impressive. That's probably one of my, my biggest sort of, you know, um, my cheerleading aspects that I would apply to this motorcycle, just the handling. It's, it's something that a lot of riders could enjoy and, and benefit from, you know, so it's not like the Aprilia Tuono, which although it's renowned for its stability, that comes at the cost of, of rider effort. It's, it's on the opposite side of the spectrum from that. So, uh, you know, that that's definitely doing a lot and that translates whether you're on the racetrack or the street. So really, so so no effort then minimal effort yeah yeah i you know i think in the review i said uh, a little effort goes a long way and that's very true i mean you can actually oversteer into corners and that, i definitely did that the first the first session i went out on the track and just trying to figure things out i was like oh you know doing my usual what i think this weight of motorcycle and performance level is such such a would need to get into a corner so and i'm like oh i'm turning in way too quickly you kind of need to do a little bit of resetting right. and again this whole conversation is colored by the fact that we have the carbon fiber wheels which is yeah it's pretty stunning honestly it's a very cool thing um awesome. so naturally that brings us to the semi-active suspension okay all right yeah so semi-active suspension you know it's the usual suspects from bmw uh you do have multiple modes as i mentioned before they're all tied to your ride mode um, and then in the ride, ride pro modes, you can customize everything. It is super important on this performance level of motorcycle that you dial things in for you. That's going to be, you know, on the end user. Um, I got it to where I was really happy with it. The ride modes set for the street, they're plenty good in that regard. And then you can, you can get a chassis that, like I said, it's just highly, highly competent. The only sort of weird thing about the M1000R is that you can adjust compression and rebound on the shock independently, but the fork, it's an overall, you know, hardness or softness. And if you want to adjust things, you know, in a 
you know, compression rebound sense, you have to get an accessory called a spring travel sensor, except BMW doesn't sell it. Alpha Racing does, who's the official BMW Motorrad Motorsport technical partner. The problem is, even though this part is cited in the owner's manual right now, Alpha Racing doesn't sell it because it needs a new bracket and they haven't developed it yet. So that's interesting. Anyway, yeah, whatever. I've never seen that before. <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, and that sort of takes us to the, the comfort thing. You know, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about the S1000R and helps it earn that street sensibility. It has this wide motocross, you know, flat handlebar and it looks kind of MV Agusta Brutale 1000RR-ish. And you're like, oh, that's not going to be comfortable. Right. It looks like a proper torture rack. However, it isn't at all. It's genuinely one of the more comfortable bikes in, in the lineup. Wow. In, in the okay. segment. Impressive. 30, you know, 33.1 inch seat height. Reads tall on paper, but at the end of the day, my 32 inch inseam can get boots on the deck. Very, very happy with that in that regard. It is a naked bike. You take a lot of wins of the chest when you're at triple digit speeds, but hey man, you kind of knew this going into it. Stock tires are the Bridgestone Battle X Racing Street RS11s. Um, more than competent tire for the racetrack or the street. It's actually based off of the DOT race tire known as the Racing R11. I know that's a little confusing because the names are so close, but you know, whatever. Then of course we have the Nissan uh, brakes the m branded calipers they do come in this cool anodized blue outside of just looking awesome they're definitely more powerful than the s1000r brakes so okay. they are a step up above that sure. it's one for one finger braking all day on the street for the racetrack you'll probably reach for two but yeah the braking force is super super solid it's very very good um yeah so when you really boil it all down BMW is jumping into the deep end in terms of the super naked class. They are giving you the 200 horsepower engine. Again, that's measuring the crank. It's 205, actually. Um, so at the rear wheel, you can expect something like 190, whatever. And it has elevated things, definitely. And it is definitely bringing the fight to those other motorcycles that have reached the 200 horsepower club. I would say that the handling with the carbon fiber wheels is... That's some serious business. Then you have the brake upgrades, the electronic upgrades. This is a good step up. So for me, I think I'd be always, I'd always be reaching for this over the S1000R because it's just a more aggressive motorcycle. Now the downsides are something that we've we've harped on quite a bit with a lot of the recent BMW inline four powered motorcycles, and that's that mid range slump, and that's only to our market. No other market has to deal with this stuff. So. There you go. But M1000R, the highs are high. The handful of lows are annoying, but people are going to reflash it because that's what they do. We can't tell you to because it's illegal, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It sounds like an absolutely amazing motorcycle. Sounds fantastic. Fun all day. right. Hey, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the insight. It sounds amazing. See. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, 
and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Many of us know that the Piero Mobility Group, the company that owns KTM, Husqvarna and Gas Gas, recently bought into the classic Italian motorcycle manufacturer, MV Agusta. At 25.1%, the stake is a significant investment for the Austrian company. And to show its sincerity in taking MV Agusta back to its glory days, I recently travelled to the Varese Italy factory and met with several of the major players in this new initiative. Timur Sardarov, the CEO, Luca Martin, the COO, and Florian Kecht, the chief sales officer for KTM, in that partnership. Until this point, MV Agusta had been 100% owned by Russian entrepreneur Timur Sardarov since late 2019. <laughs> when, by unfortunate coincidence, the COVID-19 pandemic started. Timor gave me a few of his thoughts on the company he owns. The most important, we have a really good product platforms that are performing, performing in a, in a very good way. And now the next step is to actually make sure that, that this product is delivered to the customer, is serviced properly, according to its price tag, uh, and that the the depth of this um, of this brand is delivered to the customer, so the customer is understands why he buying this product. It's more premium, it's rare. So that's uh, that's a challenge that we now are working together uh, to be able to do. I thought it was quite interesting in the presentation how you said that you are hoping owners will sort of pass their bikes on, keep them, and then and pass them on through potentially generations. It's also it's sort of almost making it a legacy product in some ways. MV Agusta is one of the most collectible bikes in the world. You know, there are collections of MV Agusta that cost millions. For sure. Recently, I actually discovered another one. The collection is close to $10 million of bikes. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very surprising that it, it, is, it, it still exists and we definitely want to make sure that it goes on forever because well, as long as we can uh, get it to, just because this is one of the values of MV. And yes. if you remove this, you're stripping a huge part of its, um, of its belonging, of its history, of its story. I agree. So... Mr. Sardarov is clearly very passionate about MV Agusta, and he has a rumoured 100 million reasons, and those are in euros, to make sure that it works out. The problem for him is that despite having well, very deep pockets, it really isn't enough. What he also needs is parts buying and manufacturing efficiencies, supply chain strength and reliability, and he also needs a strong global dealer network for sales. Enter the Piera Mobility Group. Stefan Piera is clearly a man of extraordinary vision and business acumen. He sees opportunity where others see eh, risk and potential failure. 
one of his first orders of business was to bring in Italian Luca Martin, already a top KTM employee, and make him COO of MV Agusta. Significantly, Martin is also on the board of directors at MV. I joined KTM in 2018, actually five years ago in June. Right. Uh, I was working before for Ducati, almost seven years. Okay. And I changed really several positions within KTM Group because I started doing a turnaround project in the Philippines. I was the CEO of this small joint venture we, we have. And after a while we turned out, uh, let's say, a company was not really profitable into one of the best springboard we have to, for the Asian market. And so, just after six months, Mr. Trunkenpost came to me and says, look, uh, in Florida as well, they told me, oh, Luca, you've done a great job in the Philippines. Now you had to do it for all Asia. And so wow. my responsibility moved from, let's say, production, supply chain. I kept my job. I, I'm actually still in the board of this joint venture in the Philippines. Uh, but then I started working on sales marketing, uh, after sales activity for the whole region. So I was responsible for all the important markets in Asia, included China, except for Japan and Australia, where we have subsidiaries. But then due to COVID, I spent a lot of time here in Italy because I got stuck. And my family was still here before moving back to Singapore and therefore uh, having some chat uh, with Mr. Peter, Mr. Trunk and Paul and team, we say, hey, let's see if there are opportunities to cooperate. So back then, everything started. And so I'm really, really happy and proud that now we are we are working on this. We are finally working on this. After sales is a very vital part of, of a we know we are aware of that and, and that's why uh, I think it's going to be right. the major focus of our team, not only US yes. but uh, everywhere else in the world. That's a big deal to the US consumer. The biggest criticism I hear of, of really, I think, maybe Italian product in general, um, not just for Envy Augusta as a brand, but other Italian brands is the you know the looks and the and the and the product is absolutely fantastic, but but if something goes wrong or you, God forbid, you crash the bike or the bike gets damaged or something goes wrong and it needs fixing, then you you either can't get the parts or you know it takes forever to get them. As I mentioned before, we are let's say we are benchmarking ourselves. We are let's say getting inspired, but not only competitors but also the best companies around the world. So sure. and I when I mentioned before, Amazon is not by chance because. The way that Amazon treats the customers in, in after sale is fantastic. It is. So we have, we have just to learn from there. Sure. And that's why we want to build a whole ecosystem around the, the motorcycles where we, we really try to serve our customer in the best way ever. And, right. and then I understand the struggle. This will not happen overnight. No. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not an easy task. Uh, but this is our mission. When, when you say not overnight, do you, do you have a sort of a, an appro- a goal time frame? Perhaps? Uh, I would say uh, 2023 is the year of transition. Okay. Um, but we want to really build strong, uh, a strong basement and to build a, a great house, our villa, right? Yeah. So uh, once we have uh, um, strong basics, then we can really start to fine tune our business and business processes. We already started to work on this operational excellence. There are several teams from uh, joint forces from Mati Goffin to MV Augusta to share ideas and, and try to learn each other and to listen to the customer. 
this is something that probably was not a really a key task. Right. Now we want to do really a build um, uh, a whole different customer experience. And we have right. to learn from there. We want to gather data, try to be quick responsive. And that's, I think, what excites me every day. So this is the reason why I come yeah. with a smile every day in this company. Right. Have you felt welcomed by everybody at MV Augusta? Do you absolutely, think? absolutely. I mean, probably it's much easier for me because I'm Italian. <laughs> right. And I can speak the same language. But, um, you know, there are a lot of rumors, what's happened, what's going on. I don't want to talk about that. What I want to say is that I feel at home here. And that's um, the beauty of this partnership, because people here understand that we are here to help. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic. So to bring KTM to MV Acousta without ruining the Italianness of MV Acousta, that's... Sounds like a really great goal. I think uh, I think we're all very encouraged by it. It's um, I think there's going to be a little bit of skepticism. We've heard this story before. Again, absolutely, not just absolutely. not just with this brand, but with other Italian brands. And we've heard this story before. And no, it's all going to be great going forward. But I really feel like KTM's uh, success or Pira Mobility Group, with all the three of the brands yeah. you now have in the U.S., the success has been astounding. Absolutely incredible. Um, I remember when COVID first started and uh, the guys at KTM USA asked us to have a meeting and they said, we see this as an opportunity. And not only did they not pull back on their marketing, they doubled down on it. And it's that yeah. level of attitude and commitment. That and that's what I love from really KTM. So I was, as I mentioned before, I was responsible for the facility we, had, we have in the Philippines. And the day after, I mean, everything kicked in in Europe because in China we had already some, <laughs> that's a little preview of what's coming up. And so Mr. Pira called me and said, Luca, don't worry, this is a huge opportunity. Keep going, yeah. do whatever it takes to keep the production running because you will see we will come out uh, even stronger. And I got, wow, I mean, I am the last in a row uh, coming into the group since few few months and Mr. Peter called me just to give me this this kind of motivational speech I was really really right. excited really yeah. excited and this is what we want to do here really to bring excitement to, to say that again with the solid position of the Peter mobility group yeah, uh, financial stability yeah, financial stability yeah, sure. and again global presence we can really help we can really help yeah. and again uh, I'm the guy who, who really like to talk about numbers and facts sure. rather than dreams. Okay. Uh, we know the, here in MV we are all dreamers because if you're <laughs> not a dreamer, you, you wouldn't be able to produce such a, such a beautiful bike. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to accomplish uh, our targets. You need to, the reality. We as need well. reality. And that's why. I'm not worried. I mean, there is just a lot of job to do, and therefore we, uh, everyone that can help here is welcome. And I believe that this will really uh, bring back MV Augusta where it deserves. Sure. Made in Italy products are loved everywhere. Absolutely loved. Everywhere. Yeah. And not only US, but uh, as I said before, Korea. We have customers that are just screaming to get their bikes. Yeah. And the first thing I've introduced since I'm here is an Italian flag in each and every product. Really? Okay. Because 
We are Italians and we don't really care about that. <laughs> yeah. But customer needs to understand this is a made in Italy product. Yeah. It's in a huge value. Yeah. Sometimes, is. you know, uh, it's just a flag. No, it's not just a flag, it's a statement. Everything from Italian design is astonishing. But so let me can... say, I'm an Italian engineer. No? Okay, you're an Italian engineer. Okay. Uh, and so <laughs> you're I'm an engineer, not an artist. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> and I want to say, not only design, but also engineering. I mean, I want to say, most of my Italian colleagues in KTM are very strong engineers, and this is what I'm also proud of. Okay. I think beyond this beauty, there is really a hardcore machine. Yes. So, yeah. And there is some technology like SCS, um, the, um, our counter-retentive crash shaft. There are really small things that applies only on some uh, yeah. MotoGP bikes. Sure. And we have not to forget sure. that these are real machines that you can have a lot of fun with. Yeah, terrific. Thank you so much. Mr. Martin came across to me as a pleasant, happy character. He's also a very smart, real-world thinker. I suspect he's extremely good at getting things done. His message was echoed by Florian Kecht, the chief sales officer for KTM, and essentially the man behind KTM's global dealer network and its incredible sales. Florian also spared me a few minutes and gave his opinions on where MV Auguste is going and why this partnership will work. It adds a dimension to our house of brands that we could not have fulfilled with any of our other brands. Because of the luxury aspect because of it? The luxury aspect, uh, aspect the Italian aspect, um, and also the, 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 the approach to the, to the design and product. Because all our brands are, are products of, of our company, yeah? whether it's Kiska, sure. whether it's R&D. And as you know, many of our products across all brands share a lot of the technology. I think with the MV opportunity, it brings a fresh dimension to how we approach business in terms of design, in terms of technology, in terms of digital tools, as we've seen with the app, in terms of distribution, we have to go new ways. So it's an opportunity for us to redefine certain aspects of our business that have become a routine, maybe a little bit too much. I see. Interesting. Do you see the luxury market as growing Absolutely. in the US or globally? Absolutely. And don't get me wrong, I consider our products luxury products. And I think the reason why we keep growing, especially in the US, by the way, <laughs> right. uh, is because we, we set ourselves off through the consistent work with, with and around our brands from the, the mainstream, lower, lower um, uh, margin, lower price markets. To, to a large extent um, and I think there is no end the more you go luxury these days it seems that the less there's an end to, to what you can do right. to, to, to customers uh, showing an interest in your product and this is certainly an opportunity for MB Augusta as well right society is split in yeah. America probably more so than anywhere else <laughs> right, well there is that mm -hmm. yeah yeah interesting in the presentation you said that of the dealers there were two things that you, you had to sort of start again and you said we're going to make, we want you to make two changes. Are you able to tell me what those changes are that you want dealers to make? Well, basically we want them to have, uh, to offer to customers a retail experience that does justice to the brand. And that is meant in terms of how products are presented, but also in terms of how service is provided to, to those customers. Uh, in terms of customer service, but also in terms of spare supply. All of which now I think is a, is a weak point within the Augusta because of disruptions in the past. The second thing is uh, that we want these dealers to believe in the future, in the future of this brand, 
backed up with peer mobility's infrastructure and, and, and ownership and, and financial stability. My wife, we own an MV Augusta. She owns oh, an really? MV Augusta Brutale. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and, uh, and she loves it. I mean, you know, for all the reasons that you've said. What's the support been like from your dealer, for example? Well, no, I have to say the buying experience is very good. Yeah. It's a beautifully set up dealership in mm -hmm. Southern California mm -hmm. named Pro Italia. Mm -hmm. um, they're very good. I yeah. mean, it's a very nice presentation. Yeah. So hence my question, I was very curious because I thought they really did a very good job with that. Mm -hmm. um, the after sales has been excellent. The support has been very good. Mm -hmm. um, there was one problem with the bike. It's a very consistent sort of thing with the back brake and they've mm -hmm. been very helpful with mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I have to say we haven't had any complaints. So I was very curious when you said, we're having to ask all the dealers to sort of to shut down and then start again with the, with the network. But I'm sure they'll probably sign up straight away. Um, I would hope so. I don't know this particular instance, but I would think that if the experience is like you, you told me, there is no reason why this dealer wouldn't continue his partnership yeah. with MD Augusta. Sure. My point was more like we found many dealers that, that should never have been a dealer because okay. all they did is they, they, they took deliveries of some motorcycles and they put them somewhere in the warehouse, but they, they were not able to invest because they had no business. They, they maybe did not get support from here in order to provide proper customer service. And we are saying that if we want to sell a luxury product, then also the experience from the customer must, must mirror right. that, that product uh, yes. positioning. Yes, it is, it is different to sell something luxury than it is to sell mass market. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is also a new aspect for us because even though I think we are we're good in dealing with premium brands, I don't necessarily think that, that any one of us knows how to deal with a luxury brand, right? right. It's a different ballgame. It is. And that's that's good also for the company to, to, to reinvent certain things and certain aspects to try new ways in distribution, in product presentation. Um, it's 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 a good new inspiration. You talked about there are um, 180 dealers. Is that globally or is that in the US? No, that's globally. Globally, okay. And we saw today that theoretically we can produce 15,000 motorcycles here, but I don't think that's relevant. I think what's relevant is that we produce one motorcycle less than the market demands. Of course. And if we are... Enzo Ferrari. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. And what I do want is I want that we have dealerships who have a chance of running a profitable business. And that means, from my experience, probably 70 to 80 new MBEs that you need to be selling in order to be also able to uh, make a profit, reinvest into the brand and, and just have a nice business. So if we're saying the target of sales is between 8 and 12,000, depending also on which models we will see in the future model uh, lineup, then that gives you a number of 150 to 200 dealerships globally. In, in the US, I think, if we want to also stay consistent with the luxury positioning, we're talking about maybe 2000 V Augusta motorcycles in the midterm. Uh, applying the same logic, maybe slightly different, because in the US usually think everything's bigger and, and dealers stock more and have everything available. Right. So I guess you will need uh, between 20 and, and, and 30 dealers in the US, most, most likely. Okay. So, um, so you see the U.S. market as you said it is the most important market. Do you think it's really is sort of just simply because of the sheer size of it? It's because or is, the it, size, or is there more of the mindset? It's, or? it's I think it's a combination of size, uh, mindset, but also because we started our activities three months earlier in the U.S. than we started them for the rest of the distribution. Because before we signed the transaction with MB Augusta to take a participation in company, we already had signed a distribution agreement for North America. And that is given our North American team a headset of three months. And this is why they are more advanced with everything, with where they are with the network, with where they are with sales as well. And in order to you know, make, make product go to customers, the US is also for simply because their processes are ready. When here, processes are still 
in the need of being established. Right, right. What do you think that uh, Pira Mobility Group specifically brings to MV Agusta? First of all, uh, financial stability, and that is important to stabilize <laughs> the supply chain situation. Right. Sure. When the supply chain situation is stabilized, you can stabilize production, and once you can stabilize production, you can stabilize the business model for our partners. So when you when he orders uh, five brutales in the month of May, in the first month, in the first week of May, and he expects delivery, they also arrive. So he can keep sure. his commitments to the customers. If you stabilize production and purchasing activities, supply chain activities, you can stabilize uh, parts availability. Sure. If so after sales service as well, after which sales is so services, important. Um, which we are in the process of transferring all of MV's spare parts inventory to Austria as we speak to, to apply peer mobility, infrastructure, IT systems, processes to the supply of spare parts to our dealers. They will take a couple of weeks, if we're lucky, uh, to be completed. But you can see that because there are Really? As fast as that? Wow. Yeah, well, it's happening as we speak, and it's not okay. rocket science. It's a warehouse. You need to throw away the stuff you don't need anymore, and there's, there's the stuff you can sell. You put in the shelves, you have article numbers, you have SAP, boom. And that, okay. But that's, I think, the power, because we have processes like this which are standardized, and we can take a process and apply it to a new company without uh, without doing harm to the positioning of a brand because nobody sure. buys an EV cares about whether it's done by SAP or different software. The important thing is that the parts arrive. Sure. And I think we have this industrial uh, power in terms of infrastructure and, and, and financial stability that can speed up uh, projects that may be big for a small operation but that are standard for an operation of our size. I guess last question is, is how soon do you expect to see any real changes? I mean, any real dramatic changes with Envy Agusta in America? Can, can we have a, for, for our audience, do, can we offer them some hope and say, yes, things are really going to change rapidly or, or it's going to take a while? I think we have to be realistic. Sure. What, what we can change is, is, I think, immediately is the support for the dealer and therefore for the customer in terms of we can provide training to dealer mechanics because we have the infrastructure, you've seen it. We can, we can put straight the support uh, in terms of um, uh, spare parts and, and, and accessory supply. Uh, we can be there in case of, of problems like the one you mentioned for the dealers because we're doing it with the other brands. What we cannot fix overnight is uh, stability in production. I mean, all these motorcycles in boxes here probably miss a part or two. Uh, and okay. if there's hundreds of motorcycles that have to be reworked at the same time production is running at full capacity, that already creates a certain disruption with the supply chain that we cannot survive overnight. So sure. I think we'll need a couple of months to have a properly re-established supply of parts and, and, and motorcycles as well. So the hope you, you, uh, you've raised, I think it will be maybe two or three months before the customers will see a real stabilization of, of ambiguous related processes. That's still very quick. I mean, in my mind, I'm, yeah, that's, that's very, that's very impressive. Is, we're three months ahead, don't forget. Sure, so okay. But by, by, yeah. by the time we're done, we'll have sure. one full year of, of, of trying to repair the business in North America. And one thing that also makes it easier is that, that the product that is sold in America this year is already built. So it's already there or on the way mm. over. So basically they know they're, they're a piece of the cake and they just now have to find the customers for it. Right. So uh, are you going to be, are you going to allow MV Agusta to sort of do what it does? In other words, you're not going to get involved too much in the Italianness or the design. You're just going to sort of allow them to do it and, and really just power the back end. So it's MV Agusta powered by Piero Mobility Group? I think, I think the truth lies in the middle. I think okay. MV Agusta has to benefit from the synergies Piero Mobility can provide. At the same time, 
if we were just to copy paste what we've done with Husqvarna and Gaskas, then Envy Augusta would die. Right. So yes. you have to keep them independent to, to keep their DNA alive, their design alive, to also get fresh input to our existing processes and routines. Right. Um, but at the same time, you cannot you cannot just let them do what they want because otherwise it will go out of control and we will see <laughs> right. stuff that we don't think are right for the brand. And we're partners, sure. so these sure. decisions will have to, have to be made together. Sure. Are you expecting to increase your stake? I think it's a 25.1%. I something. know that's an ongoing question, and there have been all these interviews where, <laughs> right. where the two majority holders. Uh, Maybe you can't answer that. <laughs> okay. See, I don't think it's relevant because what matters to me as the, as the chief sales officer is to provide good service to our dealers and to our customers. That's okay. my first and foremost focus point. Of course. How exactly the shares are being split at the moment, there is, there is a contract that's in place, and I think that speaks a clear language. Contracts can always be changed, but I think it depends on, on whether we make progress with our projects or not. Right. And how fast we make progress. I, I find it very impressive that you're prepared to make such a commitment and such a big change to Envy Augusta with what is a relatively small stake. I mean, it's a significant stake, but it's still only a quarter of the company. I mean, you're, you're acting as though, um, as though you have full control of the entire company. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. I find it very impressive that that PMG is prepared to make such a commitment and, and really, really sort of d dive in and really help help Envy Augusta survive and thrive. Yeah, um, but I think really. so. That's, that's great. I think it's again, it's our it's our focus on the opportunity, and I think we we already have a good understanding of where the pain is the biggest, and those are areas where we also think in our self understanding that we can help the most. And that means, as I said, supply chain, uh, production, and distribution. Yeah. And we can help in all those areas. And this is why I think we, we get so involved, because we know that we can help. Okay. So now we just need to find the right uh, synchronization of, of providing help and help being accepted. Great. Thank you very much. So, there you have it. Envy Augusta is to remain Italian, with all design and manufacturing staying very firmly in Italy. However... With Timur Sadorov's business intelligence and acumen backed up by the astonishing infrastructure and organization of the Pira Mobility Group, I am very optimistic that this is actually going to work. I am excited that such an historic and storied Italian brand that makes such exquisite two-wheeled art is not just going to survive, but most likely thrive. We'll see. As my mother used to say, Better to live in hope than die in despair. <laughs> but this time, I think there's real substance behind that hope. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Our second segment brings you part two of Neil Bailey's fascinating chat with iconic racer and five-time Daytona 200 winner, Scott, Mr. Daytona Russell. The native Georgian, of course, needs no introduction. Neil and Scott have been friends for many years, and Scott opens up about the challenges he's faced, 
the ups and downs of life after racing, after that unfortunate and horrendous crash at Daytona that ended his career. We're happy to say that Scott is thriving now. Daytona 200 is a big day for Ducati. We thought it was going to be, and I was excited about it, you know, but I mean, um, back to the starting grid, I mean, this, we're on the second restart. This is the restart of the Daytona 200 2001. No, 2000, 2000, yeah. No, 2001, my bad, okay. So, yeah, after the first restart, I really realized there that my chances of winning were pretty much went out the window. When I saw the top speed of the bike was not there on Sunday like it had been all week. So I was already upset. We were on the line to restart the thing. I'm thinking, well, if I can't win, I've got to lead a lap at least, you know. So now I'm waiting on the flagman. In the back in the old days when the flag we had flagmen and not a light um, like they do now. So anyway, I'm I'm watching the flagman board go sideways. I start creeping, which was allowed back then, and I creep and I creep and I creep, and he's not throwing the flag. So at this point, my rear wheel's about to cross the line. So now I got to touch the front brake. As soon as I reach to touch it, he throws the flag, and it just threw my whole timing off. So the throttle hand really wasn't where it needed to be. Didn't have enough throttle. Didn't have enough practice starts on that Ducati. It had a tall, a mile long tall first gear. So it's difficult to get out of the pits on it. Um, so and then plot, bloom. I I I I, uh, I stalled the bike. Um, and you know at that point I knew things probably weren't going to end well with 80 riders coming behind you. Um, so I stuck my hand up, tried to get as skinny as I possibly could. I'm on the second row. There's tons of people behind me coming. I know I'm just, one guy clipped me, the other guy hit me, Richie Morris hit me square in the, in the back of the bike, and, uh, yeah, things blew up in my face, you know, I mean, I went into shock immediately. Um, obviously, when you're hurt that bad, they said I was on the, trying to stand up, you know, and I got a femur's broken compound fractured compound fractured my wrist both arms and my both palms here in my arm my left arm so um i wasn't going to get up and walk anywhere but i was still trying to they said next thing you know i wake up in the hospital at halifax hospital and and uh i look at my cousin chris and i'm like well, what happened man <laughs> i had a cast already on my arm i had a rod in my femur already um they had plated my arm already so he tells me the story and then it comes clear you know so there wasn't like yeah i mean i, I just remember everything up to the point of getting hit and then there was no internal injuries brain injuries organ injuries or cuts or bruises it was just that it was both arm and leg that's right that's right so um that could have been a whole lot worse right yeah i mean i'm lucky i, I that um, you know normally when some a bike hits somebody at 100 miles an hour they don't make it but you know fortunately for me it was only as bad as it was and um you know so that you know now the healing starts process starts immediately so how long were you in halifax Hospital? i was in halifax for two weeks is that right they just observation and two weeks and it wasn't a good stay I can remember the Halifax Hospital, not the greatest. The, the trauma center is one of the greatest. 
they're very good at, at, at that. Um, after they put you in a room, <laughs> from my experiences, it wasn't very fun. Um, but I had some issues. Um, it was a rough day. We decided, look, I got to get out of here and get back to Georgia. Two weeks there, we hired a private jet to come down and fly me from there to back home. Well, I spent another two weeks in Piedmont Hospital here downtown. Is that observation or rehab or? No rehab at that point. It was just. Rest and. Yeah, just I needed to be looked after for a little bit longer. Um, I had this gaping hole in my leg. Um, where oh, so it wasn't a clean break. It was. The it broke. Uh, it compound fractured. The bone came out the back with a small hole. Okay. So but what happened was I had compound uh, compartment syndrome is starting to set in. And that's where your leg swells up so big that if they don't make some incisions along your leg to relieve the pressure, you could lose your leg, lose your foot. So that you were having to be attended to. I was, to. Um, there's a, there's a uh, technical term for it. I can't think of it right now. But um, anyway, compartment syndrome is what I was dealing with. And so they had to, they made a cut on each side of my calf and one up the outside of my uh upper leg here so everything could and then it opened up and it could breathe and those things stayed open for months so i had to be looked after they had to be cleaned twice a day this is stuff and i came home from the hospital after a month in the hospital with these wounds still open so it was a weird deal the healing process was wild you know and for i can't remember how long but i had a nurse come by the home by the house here twice a day and she was digging blood clots out of my leg. I'm sitting here watching. We're talking. I'm like, yeah, you're digging more blood, dry blood out of my leg. In the end, I, after the fact, I realized that <laughs> that was part of my leg muscle that was being dug out and thrown in the <laughs> trash can. So now I'm missing half my quads, quadricep on my left leg. Um, but nevertheless, it all came back together. <laughs> the, two lower, the two incisions on the lower legs, they healed on their own. They came back together on their own. This this upper one required a uh, a uh, skin graft, which was you know yeah no problem. And, so this is uh, months and months. Months, months. Have, are going by, you know. So mentally, like, was there a moment in that recovery and you said, "This is the end of my career. I'm not going back to," it, or were you thinking, "I'm going to get through this and go back"? I'd already decided it was over. Oh, you did. I realized pretty much right after the accident. I realized that that was it for me. And so, you know, after the two years on the Harley, I was already over racing. wasn't any fun anymore. And this was just a chance to, like, try to redeem myself, I think, a little bit after that. You know, after really four disappointing years of racing, two with Yamaha, two with Harley, and it was like, uh, this isn't fun anymore. And then when the Ducati deal came along, I'm like, I'll give it one more go. And it, you know, and that's, and then you see what happens. Sometimes when you feel that something's over, or you're done with something, you might want to follow that thought. <laughs> I didn't, and I let, and look what happened. Luckily, I lived to tell about it, and I'm fine now, and I'm cycling now, and although my leg doesn't look as pretty, and I'm missing part of it, I still, man, I've recovered 100%. I'd say, you know, in my mind. Well, I've chased you around the Georgia mountains enough on the bicycle. I'll, I'll, uh, 
I'll back the recovery part up. Recovered, I would and, say. And, then, and I credit that to cycling. You know, mm. the cycling is the fountain of youth. So anybody out there listening that doesn't know that, go try it. And it's, it's a lot of work, but I mean, right now I'm 58 and um, feeling good because of the cycling and because of the 10 years I've put in. Been yeah. So during this process and so when were you how many months did it take before you were able to start walking and moving around again oh it wasn't that long i mean as soon as i could get up and on my feet after let's just call it a month in the hospital then i go back i came back home to my grandmother's house where they could look after me there and uh i can't remember a couple of weeks of laying around over there and it was like i gotta get up i gotta get out of here i had just bought this house that we're sitting in now just a year or so before and I just wanted to come home, you know. So I limped around. I had like a walker because I had, I had a walker of some sort. Because but you've got a broken left arm. I got arm. a broken left arm, so I can't run crutches, right? So it had to be this weird walker with a, where you put your forearm down on that one arm. So here I am, limped my way over here to the house, and I got right on my four-wheeler, and I headed out into the woods, you know. I just needed to get outside and breathe some real air. So probably two months. It two months of just and then hanging out in the hospital, hanging out in my grandma's living room. It's like, look, I got to get out and go. So that would have been the longest of my life. Of, of you know, somebody saying, "Look, you're done for two months. Sit right here. You're not going anywhere." That that's was that was up. like, okay, enough of this. So finally, you know, those two months went by, and I had a great support group: my grandmother, my aunt and uncle, my mom. Every my whole family was there and friends so it was nice to have that um do, mentally, throughout the healing process and then there was a point where i was like all right i'm good with everybody i need to go away and do my own thing and at that point i came home and you know i didn't realize it was over so i didn't realize it was over before that but then there came a point in time where after a month i started thinking about riding the bike again already and so i called mitch hansen and uh we we uh who was team owner of hmc at the time that's who i was riding for and i was like dude let's go ride the bike again <laughs> so here i go i limp my way over to vir and we do a test session and i was literally crippled riding with one half of my body i mean we're only just months past the accident not that long and that was a test to go okay do i want to continue and at that point i thought you're you're going to try to do this again yeah so we go on from there we fly to italy and uh, we uh we go to hungary and we test there for many days with andy mcclow and some of the guys and um and you're still not fully healed right? and i'm crippled still and um, this is all in the same year, same six months period. And so then we go to the factory, Ducati, while we're there, we visit them. We try to convince them that, look, we want another shot at this. We had a, we were going to have a go at it this year, you know, and, and we want to do it again next year. <laughs> and they really, they really didn't seem to be interested in, in, in sponsoring the deal. So at that point, it was easy to say, nah, it's not going to happen. And at that point, I started thinking, okay, we're done and that's okay because yeah, I was already convinced myself months before that I was done I'm just like now I'm in some weird thing thinking I'm gonna come back again 
And so we went through the motions of testing and riding the bike and limping around and not going that fast, but, but feeling like I can get better. And, but then when Ducati really didn't want to help us, it was like, that's fine. We're done. It was a good career, let's call it. So that was it. And that was a decision was kind of made for me or together it was made by really not having a, a program going into the following season. It was easy. It was like, all right, that's it. So, so that's the first season in well over well over a decade. Yeah, it? since nineteen eighty six. So you're talking fifteen years yeah. where every season you've been getting ready to go in. I mean, so you came home here. You're hanging out. Decisions made. Careers over. Healing up. Like, what happens in your brain at that point when you're suddenly not? I think got Russell the racer anymore, and you're someone at home. I know it was a little bit weird. It was definitely. An adjustment, and it took it took time to adjust. But I had already, you know, realized that the good days of my career were kind of behind me, and that realize realization came in those two years of riding the Harley. So I had already mentally prepared myself that that that, that part of like my a, life it was, wasn't really just like a complete chop. Yeah, in a way, it was a chop because it was done by an accident, and yeah. it wasn't me saying that's enough. Let's stop. It was like, hey, your leg is broke, your arm's broke. You cannot race anymore this year. You're done. So it was kind of one of those deals, and it was kind of made for me. And then, yeah, so anyway, um, I was kind of all right with it at that point because I realized I had done all the good I was going to do in racing had already been done. My points were on the board. They were good points. I had a lot of good success. And uh, now it was time to just try to morph back into a normal life, whatever that's like. And so that was, wasn't was real hard because I mentally already prepared myself. I was done with race. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And now I'm like, look, I got this beautiful property, a nice house, a garage full of dirt bikes, tractors outside, a motocross track. I thought, we can still have fun, you know. And so at that point, a lot of motocross riding, we, we, we really started riding a lot out here. And uh, So you must have fully come back to, at this point, you're back pretty much health wise i'm beat up i'm i'm not i didn't i never rehabbed you know most people after accident that would be in rehab you just got on a motocross bike and a tractor yeah i didn't ride bicycles during that time i wasn't into cycling yet i was like i really wasn't doing myself any favors we started partying a lot and just enjoying you know life and not really worrying about being in great shape for racing or anything anymore and and then but the motocross kept me in shape but we were having a good time on the other side, so it was, it was many years of like, I don't know, just like, <clears throat> I don't know, hard, hard partying and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of motorcycle riding and a lot of four wheeling and a lot of late nights and a lot of just ten years of that shit, really. I mean, and ten year clips just go by quick nowadays in life, so. Next thing you know, 10 years have gone by and... Uh, Do you think you were deliberately hiding out at that point? I mean, because you weren't out in public. No, I had taken... I didn't want anything to do with motorcycles at all. I had a bad taste in my mouth just because of the way it ended. So that was 2001. Fast forward to 2008, literally. So we're talking seven years of me hanging out here at the house, riding a lot of motocross bikes. Who were you riding with? I just had a bunch of buddies that come out and rode, you know, a bunch of friends of mine. And we built a TT track where we rode the XR100s 
So we, we, we flat track, we rode every weekend. You know, it was just uh, full on. It was like, it was fun, you know, we all enjoyed it. And that lasted for, like I said, seven or eight years, you know, of, of uh, a lot of uh, dirt being thrown around out here and had a great place for it. Beautiful tracks, beautiful property, and, you know, people that wanted to keep coming and riding. So I enjoyed all that. Did it feel like that would be sustainable or did you feel like there was something missing in that time? Mm, I felt sustained with that, to be honest with you, because it's it's fun riding dirt bikes, I'll tell you, you know, and, and when you had a great track like we had and then I could jump on the tractor and tweak it and change it. So it always changed and it was like, I was a track builder, you know. I loved that part. I enjoyed getting on the skid steer and and, and building these new jumps and we were you should have seen the stuff we were we were flying through the air out here big time. <laughs> I mean and I'm I'm retired now and I'm really getting good at motocross riding, so I'm starting to enjoy it and and uh so that was a seven or eight year clip of uh riding hard, partying hard, trying to figure it all out. You know, but really not trying to figure it out, just just doing that and like forgetting about the other stuff. So a lot of years went by where I really didn't care about the racing part. I still watched it, but I've always been the MotoGP fan. So I stayed into that, but I stayed away from racing here for seven or eight years. I didn't go by. And then Jamie talked to him to come in. Out. Yeah, we got a call in Jamie in 2008, I think it was. Jamie James decided he wanted to start a riding school. And I was hanging out with Jamie and helping him. And I remember he told me he'd talked to you into coming out and instructing and that's why I bumped back into you again at Barber that year that first day you came back to the school yeah and that was a huge transitional change in your life at that point right you went from kind of hiding out here at the yeah at the ranch I mean that was your first sort of back in public appearance in what seven six, seven, seven eight, yeah it was I mean now I showed up at Red Atlanta a couple of times in those years at Daytona but not to do anything on track just to be there right but so now here we are back and we're gonna get in leathers and we're gonna go at it again and um jamie's such a great guy i mean oh, we yeah. had such a great history together racing on the same team racing against each other before that and suzuki cup years so i was like man that's this will be fun you know and uh, that was a whole new experience like trying to figure out how to be an instructor and ride track days and interact with people i remember that was a big learning curve those first few track weekends. Yeah, and realize you know that you know a lot of us racers we we go fast, but we're not sure why we how or why or how sometimes. So when you go back and you start the schooling side of things, you you, you know you you have to try to step back and 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 articulate what you were doing on the bike, which was not very easy for me. The riding part was much easier than articulating how or why I did what I did. So, but at the same time, it was a challenge and trying to, you know, stand up in front of people and talk and, 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 and help them in a school situation was new. Because, see, I didn't come from that world. I didn't go to school to learn how to ride. I did it on my own. I went through Ed Bargie school, which was a one-day deal, and that was just because you had to. After that, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't somebody coaching me along the way. It was me watching videos duke videos of grand prix racing and that's how i trained myself so now here i am in a situation in a classroom thinking 
you know, got these guys doing, we're doing lead follow, and I'm looking in my mirrors now, and it's a whole different approach, you know, and so, and it was difficult because for me, it came so easy um, learning this sport and riding fast, you know, it just happened on day one for me, and then, and then I'm looking in my mirrors going, why can't this guy figure it out, you know, <laughs> all, all I asked him to do was just stay in my wheel tracks, and, and it was hard for people to do that, you know, and I'm like, this is going to be difficult, and uh, and it was, but um, but I, it was a new challenge. And I uh, just remember being a barber, and I was breaking for turn one, and going as fast as I could, and sweating. And <laughs> you come by with one hand off the handlebar, and look over and give me the thumbs up. I'm like, oh, maybe I could have waited to break a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you, you know, you get a you get a pass on that because turn one is blind. <laughs> entrance you can't see the apex but it must have been tough for you to go <laughs> riding around with us chumps you know <laughs> well i mean you know yeah and that was the real adjustment part for me yeah. um that uh that school unfortunately didn't last but about a year yeah and uh and uh it was just a difficult i i think we were at the wrong place i think barber was too expensive to rent and i think you know i think if we could have set up shop at a different racetrack where rent wouldn't have been so Especially expensive. Especially with the quality of the, it was a really good curriculum, yeah. great instructors. Great manufacturer behind us. Great I mean, yeah, it was a really good school. Everything I think, was there to make it work, but the, the just got, it was so expensive yeah. to, to make it profit. For people, yeah, for people to want to come, yeah. I but know. I think it's, the interesting thing though is it was a really pivotal part for you because it really launched your next chapter of your life because this period back here was, you were off the grid a little bit. I mean, this has been, you know, recovering from trying to figure out who you are, and suddenly you come out into this new world of track coaching. And of course, right at that same time, Chet had called you about the announcing gig, hadn't he? That's right. All this kind of came together at the same time, which was like, it's almost like, okay, this is writing on the wall. It's like it's time for you to get back into it however you can you know this isn't it funny it kind of drew you in without yeah. you really one thing led to the other and things started layering on top of each other it did it's like so that when the opportunity arose to go back to a racetrack and put leathers on again after seven years of hanging out of the house and riding in dirt bike motocross gear i was like i'm ready now enough time's passed let's go give it a go jamie's my buddy i want to try to help him make this thing go and uh and we gave it a go you know and then for whatever reason that ended and uh like you said about that time i, I get a call and uh, they want me to come do voiceovers down here in atlanta is where they were doing the voiceovers for the uh the uh, ama series at the time chet burt's called and jack carbone they tried to call swans one of them picked up the phone they called swans and one of them called me Kevin didn't answer, I answered. So that's how I got the gig. He's like, can you do a voiceover? I said, when? Today. I'm like, what? Voiceover? I don't know. Okay, yeah, I'll be down there in a couple of hours. And that was it. And uh, I was sitting in a padded room with Brian Drebber. You know, rest in peace. He was God such a soul. great He's awesome. guy, wasn't he? And we started. And that's how my uh, short-lived um announcing career got started and uh, we were doing a lot of stuff in the studios and then finally they were like, oh, we're going to start sending you guys back out to the racetrack and then I started having fun with it you know because now I'm back in my world I'm at the track I'm hanging out with the kind of people I I, I, I am and uh, getting to know the new younger crowd and whatnot so it was kind of fun um, 
to have a purpose in life and 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 to be back in the sport that I came from and uh, so I tried that was AMA Superbike right? yeah it was AMA at the time but you also did MotoGP right did you I did yeah because I worked for Fox you know Fox is uh was the mother company and um, well they had speed and then well it's speed tv is what it was that's, and that's right and i was working there at the time and then they had ama superbike on they had world superbike and motor gp yes so we would do the ama stuff and i got to do with lee diffie um who's just awesome and a great great guy helped me tremendously in the booth and um we just had a good time together and so doing the GP stuff with Ralph, I did with Ralph Shaheen as well, and then Lee, and so I got to work with all the good guys. And um, how long did you do MotoGP for? I can't remember. I bet I did it three or four years. It was a while, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was at Coda when Marquez won his first, the first year of Marquez. That was 2012 when he came on the scene and won everything. And uh, so it was cool to uh, be in the booth to see a guy like that when he came into the big boy class and. Yeah, so got to call Indianapolis, you know, all the, 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 we did the GPs when they came here, Laguna Seca. Um, so as this started out, that, that new 10-year clip we're going to go into of broadcasting and schooling and whatever else, bicycling and all this new stuff that I'm into now um, starts out, you know, so... I'm doing a lot. I'm doing a lot of TV. I'm doing a lot of Yamaha schools. Cause when you, so when you left Jamie, what was the next school? Yeah, I got a call from Bob Starr with Yamaha. And he's oh, like, hey, yeah. you know, so once the Yamaha Champion School ended with Jamie James, at the time the Freddie Spencer School was coming undone, maybe in a little bit before that, out in Vegas, it was a Honda-sponsored gig. Nick Inots, Ken Hill, Dale Kiefer, Shane Turpin, uh, Mark Schellinger, George Grass, all the cool guy, all the guys, and uh, that were Freddie Spencer School. They end up because Jamie Jamie's deal didn't continue, but Yamaha wanted to continue with the school of some sort, so they got in bed with with Nick and those guys, and the Freddie Spencer School became it just continued as the Yamaha Champion School, but it was run now by Nick Inots and Ken Hill, not Jamie James. So I got the call to can you go be a guest instructor with these guys out at Utah? Okay, yeah, I show up, and I knew Nick. I knew those guys, you know, from being a racer and him being a drummer. We all just hit it off, and I'm like, okay, I'm here as a guest instructor this weekend, but I'm, I'm not leaving, guys. I'm coming back. I'm going to be back every school. <laughs> Somehow I snaked my way in on their school and became – an instructor with these guys and we realized that you know it was difficult for me to be a two uh, an instructor looking in the mirrors all the time so I started doing two uprides and I did it all with those guys I did one-on-one -on -one training you know get up in front of the classroom talk stuff and uh, and then realized that you know I need to be a two up guy we do two uprides and I can give these people the ride of their lives and <laughs> open their eyes to really what we're trying to show them here at the school um, in some weird way. <laughs> um, I got everybody on back scared the shit out of them. That's basically all I did. <laughs> I enjoyed it. 
I'm not sure they all did, but <laughs> and so we can. There I am now. I'm, they had to say they enjoyed it, though, yeah, because right? they paid for it. There was uh, so now I'm riding along with the Yamaha Champ School guys and and doing the Miller Motorsports thing, and that was we had a good time. But you were also commentating at the same time. Yeah, too. doing that at the same yeah. time. So and trade shows and stuff. I mean, you were turning up for some different. Different events of trade. Yeah. Teams. Oh, yeah. We were doing. We were promoting the, the Yamaha Champ School. We were going to the IMS shows. I mean, I was busy, man. Yeah. And plus, you you were totally out and about into that whole new world, right? Trying to enjoy it. Trying yeah. to enjoy uh, being a commentator, but at the same time, not really because I couldn't come home and listen to my redneck self and and, and enjoy it. So I was like, every day I had a hard time with that job. Uh, for but some you don't weird like, but you're not a huge fan of that, are you? Like being on camera or speaking publicly or doing recordings. I would, I if you had a camera pointing at me now, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. So yeah, this will like probably it. be the last one I ever do, too. So um, I ain't a fan of it all. But I mean, then I was trying to enjoy that and, and embrace it. But there was part of me that didn't like me on camera, and that <laughs> really worked against me through that tenure of being that and so which kind of sucks because people did like your commentary because you had such good insight you know and basically i just quit in the end i was i was signed on for another year to go back to uh with them for speed vision to go to or speed tv to do the gps with ralph and on i'm like no i'm out i just didn't like hearing myself and that was enough for me to say forget it i'm going home (laughs) and and, um, you know, so I got four or five years out of that. I don't know. And, and it seemed like I'm a 10-year clip out of, of schooling and, you know, four or five years of the TV stuff. And and then... So what happened to the champion? You left the yeah, Yamaha the, Champion School. Yamaha Champ School, it's all me, you know. I mean, I, I enjoyed it until I didn't, you know. And I, uh, I realized, you know, I'm not good at standing up in front of the classroom. I didn't enjoy that part. I enjoyed riding the motorcycles and the camaraderie of it all, being with Nick and all the guys. We all had a good time. We had a great time at school. I did. And, and then it got to the point where I had just become this two-up rider guy, you know, in the school. And uh, it was like, you know what, that's enough. I've done this enough. I just don't feel how like did, I want to do how that. How did you anymore. feel about Did you feel like you were always being trotted out as Scott Russell, the world champion, and not really who you are? Or? <laughs> not really. No? Nah, I mean, didn't I didn't think that, that they took advantage of that. I think they, you know, it was a, it helps the school to have a world champion on hand. It uh, validates a lot of the things that, that I agree with what they're saying. Mm. Right? And, and, and we, But you didn't feel like you got fed up of being rolled in as. Yeah, I just didn't feel like a good teacher. And it's like, look, if you're not going to enjoy that part of it and feel like you're really doing good at it, then don't do it. Did they try and talk you into staying on? No, nah, not really. They were like, I okay. mean, they kind of did. They're like, really? You're, you're done? I'm like, yeah, I'm done, man. I, and I said, look, man, the open invite is always here. You come back. They mm. called several times after that. Hey, man, can you come up? Nah, I'm, I'm good. And then I had an opportunity to go back to ride with the Ridiculous. Well, how, how long? So when you, uh, so you've, you've come out of the MotoGP yep. commentating and that, and you come, what do you, did you come back here and just hang out for a I while? I came back. It's, 
you know those years just run together it's yeah, hard yeah. To, to just pick them apart but um so um i was commentating up and and i can't remember when that ended i can't remember what year that ended um probably about 2014 i think the speed was gone the speed was gone 2013 the the the, the tv package was gone we were doing this shit on the internet i forget what it was called what's it what was it called i was doing it with barry boone we weren't doing live tv anymore i'm like this is over you know it's mm-hmm. sad so that ended and then i can't remember what year i decided to to end it with the yamaha champ school um but i well, it ended at some point there and and then there was a couple of guys that came through the yamaha champion school in utah um a father and son that really got into love the sport and they had a lot of money and they realized that look we don't want to keep coming to the school we would rather do our own thing and got with ken hill and said ken how should we do this ken said look you got the money just rent the racetracks i'll come and coach you one-on-one so that's how ridiculous racing started with adam bronfman and josh bronfman and they bought a semi-rig and they started renting all these tracks and then the next thing you know half of the yamaha champ crew was working for them and that to me just seemed like a little bit more fun and more relaxed situation and i worked a deal out with them where i could come in and uh and be me uh and just uh give two up rides and more or less or or give some two up rides but like i said you know build me an r1 i don't want to be riding an fc1 i'm i'm not the naked guy bike anymore i want to ride a good road race bike where i can be who i am when people see me that's scott russell you know they don't see me riding some upright naked bike with somebody hanging off the back all every every time so they found a nice little spot for me in there and and that lasts for two or three years until those guys lost interest. You know, that's how rich guys are. They hang out and do stuff for a while. And then they, I'm done with that. Let's go do something else. And we all knew that at any minute this deal could end with the, with, well, with Shane the crash. Tur- Shane Turpin was in the middle of that. Too, yeah, Shane and I, we, <laughs> we had such a good time together. And he was one of the main reasons that I kept coming back. Yeah. Because I'd go stay with him in Utah when I'd go out there and we, we would just eat breakfast in the morning, ride together at track, come home at night, shoot shit. We had a great time. And then, you know. he I just love that guy. I, I don't have, a, I haven't got a lot of seat time in with him, but I've got some experiences with him at a Bermuda launch in Italy one time and then another time for a Yamaha program. He's just a nutcase. He's brilliant. He's so funny. <laughs> He's just so, just so this was kind of like a fun time with this. Were you doing anything else, or were you just kind of coming back here and then? At that point, TV was gone. Yeah. And I was heavily into cycling. So 2000, let's jump back real quick to 2012, June. I'm at Utah. I'm doing TV. And I'm seeing all these riders, Josh Hayes, and all these guys, they're getting on their bicycle gear, and I see them all ride out of the track at night on a pack of guys, you know, racers going out on their bicycle ride. I'm like, hang on a minute i need some of that i need to get in on that action so that is what lit the fire in me 
you know, I took a look down at my leg from Daytona and I looked at them riding out of the track and I went, I need to do that. And so immediately I went full force in cycling 2012, June. I start riding, get on Strava and, you know, it's did just... Did you go a, straight to road riding? I did. Yeah. I went straight, I bought me a Scott CR1 Pro bicycle and I started riding. And... And that turned into 10,000 miles a year riding. You know, so 10 years, here we are now, we're 11 years down the road from that. Um, my cycling career started, you know, 11 years ago. And uh, I love it. You know, it, it has, you know, and it gave me a purpose in life to uh, try to get my leg better, try to stay in shape. And uh, just, I enjoyed it. I'm on two wheels again, you know. Now my whole thinking in life is I want to get in great shape. Unlike the whole 40 years leading up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I just rode on my natural talent. And then now it's like, okay, you're really going to try to get in shape. So. so when you started cycling, were you immediately good at it or did it take a lot of time to... Oh, man. I don't know if I was any good at it, but I... I just enjoyed it. Um, yeah, you, I was probably good at it. I mean, it's just two wheels. Anything I've done on two wheels, I just happen to be pretty darn good at it. Just worked out that way. Now, I realized how good I wasn't when I started doing group rides. <laughs> but as I'm riding around by myself and riding with the other guys, and then I got into mountain bike racing, and I won my first mountain bike race, which goes right back to 1986 where I won my first road race. So I'm like, okay. I just won my first mountain bike race. Granted, what, it was the sport class or whatever. What, what year was this? This was early. This was 2000. Um, um, I started in 2012 cycling. I started um, racing mountain bikes a couple years after that. I did some road. It took two or three years probably before I got into the mountain biking. Seriously. So as soon as you went into mountain biking, you raced and won the yeah, first race. Yeah, I won a three-hour race. We do three or six-hour format around here. It's a Chain Buster series. So I started getting into that. I'm like, I won my first mountain bike. I'm like, I'll be back at the next one. <laughs> so I played that out. I ran the whole series. I won the little championship two years in a row. And it was just fun, you know. Um, I was doing a lot of road riding. And I was getting in good shape. I started doing group rides in, in Atlanta. Turns out Atlanta's got such a great cycling community. And there's so many group rides of fast riders all around town. You got to ride with us once. And it's like, yeah, this is great. Man, these are guys really pushing me to the next level. And you realize how fit you're not when you start doing that. And then I'm like, oh, I want to get more fit. So that just, I just sunk my teeth into it. And. And that became a everything. That came my whole life. But it's interesting because I think we talked about. It. I don't. Remember, I can't remember if we talked about it in the first po first podcast or we talked about it last time we went cycling. How you didn't train during your career because you had the natural talent, and then now looking back, you wonder what, how might it have been if you'd been, you know, if you'd been training the way you're training now. I keep. You know, that's always going to be a big question for me. But, I mean, how many world championships could I have won? Who knows? It really doesn't matter at this point, does No, it's just, I, a, I, it's it's just a, a great question, though. Yeah. It's like, hey, man. But 
I mean, I raced with those guys like Mick Dewan and, and Aaron Slight. These are guys that trained every day of their life. They're in the gym or they're on their bicycle. And that's how they ran their life. And me, I, <laughs> I was a little bit old school. <laughs> but yet I was still beating you know, guys like that. And I could compete with Dewan and those guys when I went to Grand Prix. It was clear to me that I was as fast as they were. They had a better bike. The Honda was better. But, I mean, this is the five-time world champ. I'm like, I can run with this dude. So when I look back and I kick myself a little bit in the ass about, yeah, dumbass, you should have trained harder. You know, but, I mean, I can't look at it like that. I had a great run, and I was still competitive. So I, I, I think now after racing i worried about that more <laughs> i worried about how great how good a shape can i get in now and i had a goal to be in the best shape my best shape of my life at 50 years old and i achieved that goal and that goal continued and here we are now eight years down the road from that and uh i'm still pretty good so and and, and it's all credited to cycling yeah i mean it's definitely you, you doing this so are you, are you racing? You're not currently racing mountain bikes. I mean, you're just kind of at a, you're just training regularly at the moment. But. I did a mountain bike race this year in uh, February down in Santos, um, just for fun. Um, I was struggling. I have have some uh, physical problems that have been bothering me now since this year, since February. I went down there hurting. I wasn't feeling good, but I still did the three-hour race, and I just did it because a buddy of mine wanted to get into racing and. We did it together. I didn't any place. I don't even know where I placed 15th or something. I didn't care. But all the races before that, I went to win. And this year, it's like, look, I got a physical issue. I'm dealing it's with. It's gonna go easy. I'm not worried about winning anymore. It's not about that. It's about. So interestingly enough, like the cycling was able to satisfy that that urge to win that maybe you hadn't had since the Daytona crash up until he took up cycling. Yeah. When I left my last race, my last race win was 1998 at Daytona on the Yamaha. <laughs> so I was ready to win something, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it had been a long time. <laughs> yeah. And when I, and so I you knew. Still, you still had that burning desire. Yeah, well, I had that. And then, all this, you know, like I said, when I started the mountain bike racing, I probably had two, a couple years of, of road riding under my belt. So I have starting to build a base. You, you know? had a good engine. And, and, and then I had dirt bike skills from all the stuff i'd done so in the backyard in 10 years so i'm like mentally i'm a racer i'd already won the race when we rolled up on the line because i know they half these other mountain bike guys they're not they're not nothing like me they don't come from that world of racing and so and i knew my dirt bike skills were very good so those two together my training on the road bike and my mental my mental state of of positive thinking and then my skills in the dirt, I started winning right away. And, and that wasn't, and then I needed more. I had to come back for more. But Did you feel it was a transition from being all geared up on a dirt bike to riding around in spandex, a, a spandex <laughs> <laughs> with no engine braking and no foot brakes? And, yeah. I mean, it's got I, to be, I mean, did you, it was did just you, a different. You oh, you know, just, this you is just, just the next stage for me. You, you know? just get like, on. It's two wheels. You just get two on. Two wheels. Go, right? I enjoyed the dirt bike for a long years, a lot of years, and then, you know, when you when when that died off and people quit coming out to ride, you don't ride by yourself, but a bicycle you will, and so now I just picked that up and carried on from there. Something I can put my iPod earphones in and 
and go do a hundred mile by myself. I didn't give, I didn't care. And uh, but then you know when I found that the mountain bike stuff, you know I still to this day have not done a road race on the bicycle. I'm a road racer, but yeah, I I, t I lean toward the dirt. Um, I just uh, I don't know why I just did. But once I got the dirt, I first went in the dirt. You know, it was just like road racing. All I want to do is train more and ride more and be better at the next race. So continued doing that for years. Um, over the last couple of years, I've tapered off on the the, uh, the mountain bike racing. hadn't really been a big deal. It's just been about maintaining that level of fitness and uh, continuing. But you have, but you have done some road racing in the last decade. I mean, just some appearance type stuff. I'm talking about road racing on bicycle. Yeah, but I mean, on the track, you've been back. Yeah, um, because I was um, doing the uh, the Yamaha schools and then into the Ridiculous schools for three or four years after that. That was a 10-year period that I was continuing to ride. And, uh, you know, a guy like me don't lose what he had. I mean, you're going to lose some of it. But when I'm back on the racetrack and, and when I got my helmet and leathers on, I'm like, I'm, I can easily come back to that old guy, Scott Russell. But... Is it to e a point. Is it easier now? Are the tires better? The bike's better now? I mean, do you feel like, wow, if we'd had this stuff years ago? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice at 50 years in your 50s to be out there ripping around a racetrack thinking there's a real slim chance that I'm going to fall down anymore because I can turn this throttle wide up and I got traction control. Um, the tires are so good. These bikes are so good. I mean, I rode. Listen, I rode 10 years of that with these guys on and off in schools and putting guys on the back, and I'm trying to ride as hard as I could with two people on it, on a naked FC1 dragging everything underneath it. I didn't ever fall down. And to this day still, 10 years down the road, 11 years down the road, I still haven't crashed my road bike. So you don't have to fall down to go fast, you know. And I was able to go back to a place where I could get get my kicks, still be sliding and still be wheeling, and still be faster than anybody out on the racetrack at the time. At most cases, I was like, "Yeah, this is good." So it wasn't hard for me to find my old self again. And then nearing the end of that, we we'll go back. I don't know, a couple years ago, 2019, the school had just ended. Well, school was about to end. They were about to pull the plug on the, the, the uh, ridiculous program. And that was very upsetting to a lot of us because we just had the camaraderie of we were a group of guys. You know, we were, we were a crew. And uh, we just enjoyed it. So it hurt a lot of us when they pulled the plug on that deal. But anyway, right at that time, I was invited to, uh, to do you want to race this Pirabon Ducati chassis number one and uh, a full-blown Ducati Superbike motor in it at Barber at the Vintage Festival. And I'm like, oh, boy. Okay, sure, I'll give it a go. But I've been riding a Yamaha R1, so now we go. We went to uh, a little racetrack out in Colorado, High Plains Raceway, and we spent two days testing leading up to the Barber event. And those were the first two days I'd ever seen the bike or been on it, really. And uh, the suspension was way out in left field. And we really, really wasted two days there and never got the suspension to a spot where I thought 
we're in good place, you know. I should have broke the track record there before we left. That didn't happen. So we left there. I was like, did I make the right move here? And so the next time I see you guys, we're going to be at Barber, and we're going to have one day, essentially, two days to get, to this, get right. this thing right. Because right where we are now, we're in left field right now, dude. We're in bad shape. So the guys went to work. They got new stocks for it, whatnot. We showed up at Barber in October, and we're entered into the little superbike race. And uh, Taylor Knapp, Steve Rapp, um, well, Jeff that, May. Oh, Jeff. Jeff May, I'm sorry. But Jeff and, and Danny Essek had d developed the EBR at Barber Racetrack all those years ago. And so they gave him the EBR at the end of the, his career, like, here, Jeff, take one home with you. So he was dialed in on that thing. And we get over there, and we start the weekend out. And uh, first session, end of the day, I got to look at the time sheets. I'm four seconds off. And the bike's still not really good, and I'm, like, really upset now. I'm like, this probably was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we keep working, Brian Sharp and all the guys, and, and we're working on the bike. We're, we're, we're sending data back to England. we got guys in England coming back and forth with data trying to, like, help us set the bike. And we got some front-end chatter going into the corners. I'm like, okay, let's take engine braking out of it. I'm like, what? This is What's stuff that I have nothing, never knew anything about. You know, all the this is all the latest and greatest. This is Magneti Morelli. This bike has all the best stuff on it. This is a hundred thousand dollar motorcycle I'm riding. And anyway, we ended up finding a happy spot somewhat with it. It was never right, but I, I narrowed the gap down to I think a second and a half into with them within qualifying. And then so I'm on the front row. I whole shot the race on race day. Race day was the race was shortened due to rain coming. And I whole shot of the race, go into turn one, and then up into turn two, Jeff comes up the inside on the EBR, and I'm like, good, I don't want to lead this. You go, you're the fast guy, you set the pole. I want to see what you got. So I latched onto the back wheel of him, and I didn't let go. And now <laughs> I'm going two seconds or, or more a lap faster than I had gone all weekend. But I'm like, I don't care, I'm not letting this guy go. So at that time, like in an instant from two seconds off the pace to two or three seconds immediately faster in one lap. That was like really, um, that was like in a surprise to me. Like I could still do this. I can find that just because I willed myself into doing it. It's like I'm not letting, off, I'm not letting him get away. That was just that simple. It's like it ain't going to happen, dude. And I'm not going to break until you do. And you just didn't have that in qualifying. I wasn't going to do that by myself. I wasn't prepared to send it like that. And then I was on the best Pirelli tires they had, the World Superbike tires. Oscar took care of me on that side of things. And uh, so when it came time to do it, my body just did it. And my mind just let myself go again and do it. And I ended up, you know, it wasn't record-breaking shit. It was a 126 as we were running. Which would put me in the top ten at the world AMA at the Superbike race. So I thought this is good, you know. I'm pretty cool with that. I mean, I'm running two or three seconds a lap. So I latched onto the back of him. I followed him every lap, and I was going to pass him in the last turn on the last lap. Problem was, I didn't see the white flag when I came by the lap before, because I was so intently watching his rear wheel, because I hadn't gone that fast in a hundred years, 
And now I'm out there on that limb again, going breakneck speeds, just sending it. And I'm in a, and I'm, it was so hot that day. Um, I'm sweating, I'm dying, I'm running. I got a heart rate monitor on that's running about 185, 89 the whole race. And I'm in my 50s and you're running that high, your heart rate. It didn't matter because I was a cyclist, I was used to it. But I mean, normally, I wouldn't be running that high. So I was in a real high pressure situation for me because it was just intense because I wasn't used to going that fast anymore. But in the end, long day, long story short, he ended up winning the race by just a bike length because I didn't see the white flag and I didn't make my move like I wanted to. So yeah, in all that time, I came back to racing and found that I still had it. After all those years had passed, I mean, that was 2019. And 18 I, years. 18 years later. And he came over after that. <laughs> and we smoked Steve Rapp and Taylor Knapp, the guy that won the race the year before. They were straight away behind us. I can't figure it out how. He came over. We talked after that. He's like, how, where did that come from? I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. But it was fun, and I thought, that was it. That That's it for my racing days. That's it. I survived that weekend, and... And uh, you were able to get that back for that moment. I was able yeah. to find myself again and let it rip. That was awesome. Do you think you'll ever race again like that, or do you think that's that's absolutely that's it? I'm done. Great. That's what you I said. I mean, I here. shouldn't say never, because it might be one day that somebody goes, "Hey, let's go race this vintage bike." You know, it might be that bike I race ten years from now. It'll be vintage then, or who knows? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You never know. But right now, that's not how, that's not a thought. In my mind, it's just like, but it, I never say never, I guess, at this point. But, I mean, you, your life changed, um, I mean, I guess fairly recently when you, you reconnected with Erica. That was a huge, big change. So you'd, be, you'd been pretty single through this whole period. Nah, we got connected again through 2004. No, but prior to. Yeah, 2014, we uh, we reconnected in Day, Daytona. And... Uh, Fifteen years had gone by. We dated when I was a Yamaha factory rider in '97, '98, and then um, we went our separate ways. And fifteen years had gone by, and we reconnected. How long were you guys together the first time? Because just you were, two years, just and a short Europe, time. You'd been in Europe together and traveling. And yeah, she went to Europe with me in '08 with the Yamaha gig, and we, yeah. So, um, what was the punch out story in? In Europe with Erica, wasn't in it? Italy. In Italy. Oh, you want to hear that? Oh, great. Thanks. Well, that, that was the first time you dated. I've been punched out a few times now. <laughs> wow. It's funny, though, you know, it's funny now. Um, we'll go back to Italy, 1998. And I had this outfit helping me with a website, and these guys were great. Um, great couple of guys out of Italy, and built me a great website and they were trying to help me with all that good stuff and design a line of clothing and all that so after the race at uh, monza they had hired out a nightclub down in milan and we had this big to-do party after the fact you know and uh, <clears throat> so uh, anyway we're all there we're ripping it up we're drinking heavily I end up outside the club for some reason. We're not gonna sure why. 
and I had an altercation with a cab driver, you know. So Erica came outside the club. I was talking to somebody else at the time. It wasn't a good thing. She was upset. Everything got blown out of portion. The cab driver decided he was going to step in and console my girlfriend because she was crying. I said something smart mouth to him. He, he, <laughs> he swung around her and hit me in the eye <laughs> really fast. <laughs> I hit the ground, and then all of a sudden, all these cab drivers start kicking the shit out of me because they were all lined up in front of the nightclub ready to take people home and shit. And here I am getting the shit kicked out of me in a fucking nightclub on the street in Italy. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know. I'm laughing the whole time because, you know, when you drink that heavily, you don't feel the pain until the next it's, day. It's handy in Real those handy moments. in situations <laughs> like that. And, uh, so. and so I go back in the club. They're like, what happened, dude? You know, the shirts ripped and my eyes start to swell up. And I'm like, anyway, so that was that story. I mean. But you guys, you separated not long after that. We right? finished the season out together and then we went our separate ways after that. Um, so then how so, did you reconnect 15 years later? Yeah. And before all that, we stayed in touch, you know, with each other. I used to call her all night, and I'd say, I'm coming today, bye quick again. You want to come see me if you get a minute? And, and at the time, in the ni 1999 or 2000, no, it was 99, when I just signed the Harley deal, she had come down to see me again. So we stayed in touch throughout that whole period of 15 years. <laughs> excuse me, 15 years, I would stay in touch with her periodically. And uh, there was a time where she wasn't dating anybody, so she'd come down to see me. And we went out that night at Razzles downtown in Daytona. And, and again, an altercation happened <laughs> with me and some other guys that didn't, you know, like me for some reason. Long story short, I got knocked. I, I didn't get knocked out, but I got punched again in a nightclub in a situation. It was another... I didn't see this one coming. They sucker punched me. I didn't see it, but it really broke my eye socket, broke my 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 cheekbone. I was messed up from that one. I didn't get to ride the 200, but Erica was with me then again, funny enough. So she got to see me get punched out twice. And uh, and then I, we went our separate ways again for a little while, and that would have been 99, and then it was 2014 before we reconnected. I came back to Daytona. We were doing the uh, my last year of TV, and she came down to see me, and I uh, love rest is history. Next thing she knows, she moved up here. We stayed together. We've been together now since uh, then, and uh, that was 2014. Two years ago, we ended up getting married on New Year's Eve, finally, and uh, it, during COVID, which was weird, and we did it, and and everything's good, you know. So, you know, I know it's hard for her. Because I'm hard to live with, but um, I, I, I thankfully found somebody that I can hang out with, you know, and I hope she feels the same. So, yeah, here we are, eight, nine years into it together again. We got a family of animals. We don't have no kids. We've got a cool house. We got things are going pretty well, I guess, for us now. So it's been a, It's been a wild ride. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff. I mean, I, um, I like the fact that, you know, 
you know, this year you turn 59, I mean, next year's 60, you know, you're in the sixth decade and, you know, you're still hitting it hard on the pedals, you're still super fit, you know, you still got your property, you know, you're in a great relationship, like you say, you got your family of animals, your friends, I mean, it's a nice place to be in after all the ups and downs of your life and your career, isn't it? It is. Um, it's nice to uh, to kind of settle in. It's taken a long time. It's like, okay, I'm all right with all that, mm. you know, all this. I mean, God, it's been how many, 20 years now. you got to get over it one day. It really wasn't hard to, it was just a different, like, it's weird, like 10-year clips have happened, you know. But it's a big, it, it is a huge transition, I would imagine, to come out of being on the world stage and all that excitement and all that craziness. And, you know, what would you say to young or to racers that are having to leave the sport after this very intense career? I mean, do you think cycling was a big savior for you because you were able to channel that energy into something really productive? Or I think so. I mean, I was lost for years. We were partying, doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing for many years at, right after it. Mm. And then that was a lost period. Although I was still motoing and riding dirt bikes, I was still kind of like trying to figure it out. But then once the cycling came into play and it became all about health as well. Mm, mm. Okay, nothing else mm. matters. when If you don't have your health, you got nothing. So right. it's been really important to you. And I mean, you know, to find that for any yeah. of you guys that are out of racing and getting out of it or when it, you know, try to try to fill your spots with that, with something working out, something that uh, keeps you in shape because that's all you got, man. You lose your health, you're dying. And so for me, that was a savior. Being able to do all the things I had done in that 20-year clip now that we've been out of racing, a lot of different things have happened, but the most positive was uh, the first part positive was the, was the cycling and finding Eric and, and us finding that happy spot. That was big. So, um, I mean, it's and uh, you know, I'm super appreciative that you took the time to do these podcasts because I know you really don't like this stuff. This was which was interesting to me because obviously I was used to hearing you on the TV and I saw you always out and about, and I didn't realize you're not fond of this part are you mm -hmm. at all? Well, I mean, I have not been a real fan of myself ever. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, I never throughout the whole time racing and <clears throat> having all the success it's like i was still that same dude that i was before that in my mind so i never let it go to my head and i took it with a grain of salt which probably wasn't the ideal way to do it i probably should have embraced it more worked harder at it instead of just relying on my natural talent thank god i had a load of that but i mean like now the cycling thing to uh, have to sink your teeth into something like that and be, try to be good at it, you can't fake the cycling. You can't fake it. You know, the motorcycle stuff I could because I was so good at it. And you didn't have to be in tip-top shape back then to compete. Um, it just didn't have to. But do you even get out there on a Saturday ride with the fast boys? <laughs> you must just go home. Man. I know. So yeah. that part of that really got me going and it got me into it. I'm like, you know, and then the competitive part of it, although we're not in a race, we're in a group ride and it's fast, I, I want to be able to keep up and I want to be able to ride near the front. So that was the motivation then um, that, uh, again, lit the fire like road racing. You know, I, I won my first mo uh, motorcycle race I ever entered. First road race I entered at Little Tal I won it. That was the hook 
That was what brought me back. Mountain biking, first rice standard. I hooked, I won it. That was the hook. I'm coming back for more. Um, training through the roadside of things with the group rides, you know, was always um, pushing to try to stay to the front. And so it's been a great um, challenge. Well, that, I mean, I feel like there's an interesting chapter coming now. I mean, tell us a little bit. So obviously you've got your property out here and you've been through different phases, but your big goal really in the last year, you have an Africa twin adventure motorcycle. I've been doing a little bit of adventure riding and you've just kitted out your sprinter van so that you've now got your mobile traveling home to go and have expand out your adventures. So tell us a little bit about that because I know that's been a big process. To it has been like um, since I you know, started doing the schools and going back to the racetrack over the last whatever years and then you know, seeing all these sprinter vans come around, I'm like, oh, I need, what's up with that? And so I got intrigued in the sprinter van thing and, um, you know, I was, and have been wanting to buy one and, and, and build it out. You know, the van life thing is a big thing now. People are living in their vans. I mean, I don't want to live in mine. But I, I've kitted it out um, for, for mountain bike racing or bicycling, and, uh, and I intend to do, you know, trips and go cycling in great places and camp out in this van and whatnot and just see the country because I've seen more of Europe than I have America, really. I mean, I haven't, you know, picked my way all through America like I'm going to in this van eventually so that's been fun that's been a project you know that we just finished up um six months ago whatever got the van finished out it's super awesome and uh you know the the adventures riding stuff the african twin i've had that for a while now that bike well, i've got some good friends that do 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 a lot of riding um I need to get into more of that as we go forward. You know, I've got a great bike for it. I can put the bike on the back of the van. We can go anywhere and do whatever we want. You know, have my bicycles inside, have the, the motorcycle out back. It's a good enough bike where I put two people on it. Uh, hadn't done a lot of adventure riding up to this point, but hopefully down the road we'll do more of that. Because you'd had an XL 650 for a while, right? Yeah, right. I had that thing for years, and we would go do fire rides up mm. in North Georgia. Which is where I cut my teeth on the road race bike, funny enough. And now, now, all those beautiful roads that I learned how to ride on the road race bike, I go up and ride bicycles on and then adventure bikes. We ride on the pavement. We do the fire road stuff. So it's uh, in the same neighborhood, um, just a different uh, application. So what a great place. I mean, I've had the best training ground anybody could ever want in the North Georgia mountains to prep you for road racing and whatever else and then all the life after racing you know that's where we hope to move there eventually and, and settle up there this is cool down here but it's pretty hectic around the atlanta area and you know moving on in life i definitely want a slower pace so i think we'll end up in the mountains one day but right now we're good right here and so uh i'll just kind of keep trucking along right here for a little while well, beautiful, Scott. Well, listen, thanks for you know sitting down with us again today and kind of catching us up. And you know, always a, a you know an interesting point in my life and my career was the day that your motorcycle racing career ended. Was one of the days that mine was really launching because I was just doing my first video um, PR thing with a privateer road racer at that time, 
And I always think about that, like it was a pivotal day in your life, pivotal day in my yeah. life. And here we are, sort of 20 odd years later and crossed paths a lot and enjoyed it. So it's been really great to catch that period of your life up. Yeah. And, and also really great that we can kind of end here because you're sort of off to another exciting chapter now yeah. with this uh, traveling and van and cycling and adventure riding. So yeah that's right i hopefully you know you and i can get together and do some epic rides you know get in my van and go do some yeah some cool stuff together and maybe to, make some more stuff right and together none of this group rides that last crash i had was yeah well uh <laughs> the group ride stuff you know now that um you know taking a little bit of a break from that i mean that's intense stuff and, yeah yeah and you never know what's going to happen when you, you never go out know like that 